Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York. And Boca Raton, Florida. It's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right. Welcome back for episode 158 of the Freight 360 Podcast. Ben, how are you today? I am doing very well. First day of fall. I've been looking forward to it for the past three months. Is it officially the first day of fall? It is, as of nice. today. Yeah, my, my birthday is tomorrow, and then usually like my birthday would be like, it's usually right around, if not the actual first day of fall. So, um, snuck up on me this year. I'm going to be 35. Um, but, it, dude, it's felt like fall here. Like, we're, we're getting down. We're going out of town this weekend with the family, and it's going to be like, down towards like 40 degrees overnight. The high the one day is like 54. I'm like, oh gosh, that's quite quickly. And I was why, in does my, why does my app, my phone calendar says tomorrow's your 39th birthday? How does that? <laughs> it's, it's definitely not. I'll be 35. 19, September 23rd, 1983? No, 87. That would be why. There you go. Learn something new. Um, I was in DC earlier in the week at the TIA, uh, on the, or, uh, policy forum. We'll get into that in today's episode, but it was like hot. It was like nineties and wearing a suit and you come back to Buffalo and it was, uh, it's cold, but, uh, we'll get, we'll get into some good stuff here in a bit. But first this episode is brought to you by blue book services. Blue book services is the resource you need. If you're transporting fresh produce, their online database contains thousands of companies throughout the produce industry supply chain. You can easily search their database to generate new sales leads. Blue Book's credit rating helps you avoid companies with high credit risk, and their team can help resolve disputed loads. To learn more, go to ProduceBlueBook.com and click on Join Today. That's ProduceBlueBook.com. There is now a link on the affiliates page of our website, and you can check out the show notes as well to get that. Um, And obviously, we had a great episode last week. And we're going to have two more with Blue Book throughout the rest of the year. Really big for folks looking to prospect and learn about produce and, you know, especially when it comes to disputes and the credit stuff. So well, on that point, before we jump into sports, I pulled an article that I saw was really interesting in their newsletter today, and it referenced an older one. And this is a great example of the stuff that we talk about. Um, the article today was potato market pressure eases. Um, Northwest, but Northwest potato harvest continues improving a low supply, high demand situation from earlier this month, right? That's all you really need to know. If there is high demand and low supply, that means likely there is pressure on a shipper to get product to the receivers because there's a not enough in the market, right? That yep. is a great example of <laughs> something I'm going to pick up on and likely go prospect for that very reason. You know, we talk about ambulance chasing and going to where the problems are to increase your likelihood you'll get success. This is a great example. It also references the article earlier in the month. And I pulled that one up too from September 13th. So roughly two weeks ago. And what it says is Northwest potato supplies are struggling to meet demand as harvest is in its early stages. Potato supply challenges persist in the Northwest Demand continues to outpace harvest yields and packouts. Expect highly elevated markets and tight supply for the next several weeks. So again, they're not referencing to the truck capacity. They're referencing to the actual capacity of potatoes in the market. But again, 
If there's not enough to fulfill all of the demand, the people that do need it, need it as quickly as possible because they usually don't have it coming from other places. Did that come from their newsletter? Yeah, it did. It was uh, one that goes out, you know, daily or twice daily. Twice a day. It was yeah. one of the headlines. Yep. One of the reasons, like we said last week, why you should definitely be subscribing to newsletter. I mean, that's one of them. There's other ones too, like Freight Waves has a good one. Um, we talk about a lot of the news, but stay just stay informed and and know what's going on around you in the marketplace. So, yep. Um, little sports talk here. I, dude, I'm I'm two and zero on my predictions. I said the Bills would have another double digit uh, win, and I did personally place a bet. Um, an alternative spread bet on the Bills to cover 17 points. And oh boy, did they ever. 41 to 7. Um, by the end of the by the fourth quarter, the Bills starting offense was on the bench. We had backups all over the place. Stephon Diggs had already gotten three TD passes from Josh Allen. And man, that was an electric game. And I watched it with my Tennessee Titans uh, colleagues from Pierce Worldwide Logistics. And um, <laughs> it was an interesting, interesting uh, little gathering well, there with Bills and Titans. So one of your DBs got hurt too, didn't they? Or yeah, there was in, there was injuries on. I think we had three guys that took injuries. I didn't. I have not checked the injury report this week to see what it looks like with the Bills going into Week Three against the also undefeated Miami Dolphins. They're looking great. Tua had six touchdowns, came back from a – I think he, they were down like 30-something. 30 30, 31 points, yeah. Yeah, and they came back, and, man, that was just absolutely wild. It, it made um, – who would they play? I think it was Baltimore. Yeah. And, dude, it was crazy. And it was just all around the NFL. Certain teams that people didn't think were going to be good are good. Like the Eagles right now, people are saying Bills-Eagles could be a Super Bowl matchup. And I saw a joke on Twitter that – the U.S. does not have the infrastructure to support a Bills-Eagles Super Bowl with the craziness of the fan bases on both sides. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think the Eagles are still the only stadium that has a jail in it. They're joking about that on sports oh, radio. Oh, my gosh. Um, That's funny. Yeah. Um, Steelers did not do well last week. Didn't Couldn't pull it off. It was almost like – and I only got to see the highlights because, again, I can't seem to watch any of the games here. I – Talked to everybody I know and could not find any way to watch the Steeler game, but I saw the highlights and yeah, it, our quarterback just is either is scared to or is being told not to throw over the middle or downfield whatsoever. And it was like it wasn't even a failure; it was just a lack of attempts. I mean, but yeah, play tonight against the Browns. We'll see how that yeah, fares. I'm excited, and it's cool because it's like the uh, the Amazon Prime series, right? Like for Thursday yeah. night football, so you got to go on Amazon to watch it. Um, I'll be watching that one. That, that should be a Pittsburgh win. Actually, I, I didn't even look to see what the the spread is. That yeah, uh, actually, wow, the Browns are favored by four points. Um, I'm I'm gonna take a bold prediction here and say that the Steelers at least cover plus four. So even if they lose by three or less or win, I would be right. So that's my third prediction of the year. Let's see if I can keep my uh, streak, keep my streak going here. Yeah. Um, we got, yeah, we got a great topic today. We're going to, we're going to talk about what happened this past week, earlier this week, um, in DC with over a hundred freight brokers going to Capitol Hill. I was one of them. So, uh, we'll get into that, but first let's give a shout out to our friends over at DAT and then we'll get into it. Taking the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT load board network is the largest on-demand freight marketplace in North America, connecting freight brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business with tools that allow you to find new business partners, 
and you can quickly qualify and onboard new carriers. With the industry's leading freight rate data, you can make clear and confident pricing decisions. Make sure to check out the show notes if you do not have a subscription for a free month of Power Express or Trucker's Edge. Or if you're Absolutely. adding a license, use the link. Yep. Yeah, because even if you get more than one user, you'll still get that free month. Yep. So. All right. So the TIA Policy Forum 2022, that was the name of the event that we went to earlier this week. And for those of you that don't know, TIA is the Transportation Intermediaries Association. They're a lobbying firm that represents intermediaries, aka brokers in transportation, right? So not truck drivers, not shippers, but the actual middleman, that's us as brokers. And it's, it was it was eye-opening to see what they put together and the just the, the level of intelligence and um, just robust knowledge that those folks have. And they, they actually run a pretty lean staff. Um, there are less than 20 people uh, that are actually employed by them, but a lot of their, you know, they're funded by membership and um, they lobby in DC on behalf of us as freight brokers for policies and things that we want to, um, you know, have either go through legislation or come out of legislation or just, you know, support on behalf of us as, as intermediaries in the, transportation realm. So um, they do a lot of events throughout the year, but this one's especially important because we actually get FaceTime in front of members of the U.S. Congress, so both the House and the Senate. And we had a hundred or so different folks, you know, freight brokers and whatnot that all showed up there representing the state in which we operate. So we had five of us from uh, Tennessee, because that's the company I work for is based in, in Tennessee. And I think we had almost every state. Uh, Hawaii wasn't there. Alaska, actually, I think Alaska was there. Um, but yeah, almost every single state was represented, and it was a really good turnout. So the way that it worked was they had. Um, so just to give you context too on TIA and who the who the staff there is. So the, the CEO is Ann Ranke. She used to work in um, under the Department of Transportation during the Trump presidency. And there was also one of their new directors of government affairs, I believe. Uh, he was a, you know, he worked on Capitol Hill under some Congress and, you know, congressmen and women um, over the past X amount of years. And uh, just a lot of really, really smart people there that they understand transportation and they understand politics. And that's oftentimes two things that, you know, don't really, um, you know, coincide as far as being an expert in both. So it was really cool. So the three, the three main things that we wanted to discuss with the members of Congress were, um, and I'll break each one down, but in, you know, in no particular order, they were the PRO Act, um, the rate disclosures between brokers and carriers, and then also illegal brokerage and dispatching services, uh, aka double brokering, um, and illegal brokering in general. So it was really, really awesome to get in there and, you know, we had pre-scheduled meetings. We did, I personally was a part of six of them. I got to meet a senator the night before as well at a, at an event. Um, so check if you go on LinkedIn, you'll see, I posted a nice picture of him wearing it or holding the Josh Allen jersey right before the game kicked off on, on uh, Monday night there. So, but it was good. Have you ever gone to, you know, I know you've probably been at some conferences. Have you ever done anything in with, you know, legislation or in DC at all? No, I mean, familiar and the fact that I have family that live in DC. I was telling you that the other day, like my aunt has done a lot of work with the uh, Air Force and military budget and things like that. 
But I mean, from a distance, anecdotally, I hear kind of how it goes and how some of these things work, but I've never done it in person or been yeah, there first so person. Eye-opening for me was DC is legitimately run by a bunch of 25-year-olds. I had no idea. So mm-hmm. if you're not big into politics, um, you have the the US Congress is broken up and this is like fifth grade level stuff, but you've got the Senate, which there's a hundred members, two from each state. And then you've got the House of Representatives, which has members from each state proportionate to their population, you know, and how big of it. Like, so you get states that have one and you have like California's got like 40 something. So, yeah. And I think what's helpful for our listeners too, is to just, and again, this episode isn't going to be on legislation. It's going to be on transportation issues and whether or not we're going to see things that are going to fix it. Right. I, but I think from a very simple sense, right. How that works is you've got Congress, you've got Senate bills need to be proposed by a congressman. If they are go through Congress, then they go to the Senate. If the Senate approves it, then it can be signed off by the executive branch, whoever is president. Yep. That's how typically something goes from not a law to becoming a law. Yeah. So what's interesting is obviously each each member of Congress, you know, you see your representatives and your senators, they can't be experts on every issue. So they rely on their staff to be well informed on what's going on. So there's literally young right out of college interns and you've got these uh, legislation or legislative uh, assistants that are maybe in their mid to late 20s or in their 30s. Um, you know, we, so we actually I got to meet two senators, an actual representative, um, a chief of staff and then a bunch of legislative assistance to, to talk about these issues. But, um, so I guess we'll, I mean, we'll kind of get, we'll get Let's right in. Pro yeah, act. Go by the first one, one in our notes. The yeah. pro act. So this was something that, um, you know, think about this, like similar to California's assembly bill five or AB five that we've talked about, right. That would have an impact on the owner operator community on freight agents, things like that. The pro act is actually, it's a, it's an acronym for the protecting the right to organize act. And it has a lot, there's a lot of stuff in there that has to do with unionizing and um, the requirement to unionize under certain companies having the choice to. But basically what it would do if it was passed was um, it would weaken those right to work states that you know, I think there's 27 U.S. states right now that are designated as right to work states where they're they're in favor of the worker over the actual company. And um, it would affect the ability for companies to have 1099 freight agents. It would try to reclassify them as W-2 employees. And it would affect that owner-operator community as well. And really put a dan- it, would, it would throw a wrench into the capacity in that independent contract market of, of drivers out there. So the big push, obviously, on our side is to vote no on that. We don't want, we don't want to see that spread across the country. Let me ask you something before we get into that. What was the pros? Like, what was the, no pun intended, like, what were the advantages? Why are they trying to push us? What is the problem they're trying to solve with an act like um, this? So there's a, the, the, the previous labor law that this is contending is the National Labor Relations Act or the NLRA, if you've ever, ever heard of it before. Um, but what that does is it, it's, it's got various protections related to employers' rights to organize, so to unionize um, and, you know, collective bargaining in the workplace. So it's really, a, it's, it's really intended to enable folks to unionize more, but what it's the way that it's written so broadly is similar to AB five. It pulls in almost like unintentionally the the transportation. You know, we fall under the scope of of what that legislation would be, and um, you know, it would really impact the the ten ninety nine situations that are beneficial. 
and help out the transportation world. So like, for example, um, it's kind of the same stuff as AB5, right? Like there's the goal of the legislation and it's states that tend to lean left are obviously trying to encourage the ability to unionize and have collective bargaining agreements put in place. Whereas states that lean right are on the other side of that spectrum when it comes to their opinion and their, their beliefs on it. Um, but where it really hurts us is the unintended consequences. So the 1099 works very, very well in transportation with leased on owner operators and with independent freight agents. Okay. If, if you have a, an agent that works for a company and their 1099 contract, right, they're not employed. So we're not their boss. They're not our employee. We cannot tell them how much business they have to do. We can't tell them what time they have to be at their desk. We can't even supply them with a computer or a phone system. Um, they are operating their own business. In addition to that, they can go work in, you know, you, you can be an agent for a, a full truckload company and then maybe you want to be an agent for an LTL company and you want to be an agent for a uh, freight forwarder because you have different lines of business that um, fit better in someone's business model. And if you ha- if you go with that employment role, the W-2 model instead of 1099, there's a lot of times where these non-competes will come into play and you'll have conflict of interest and it's going it, to... It does not enable those folks that are experts in certain areas to to really diversify themselves across different parts of the industry. So if someone is really good at um, full truckload and at LTL and they can they get better service being independent contractor through one company for full truckload and vice versa through LTL, um, they can do that in the 1099 model, but they often cannot do that in the W-2 model. So, and the same thing we've talked about before with truck drivers, that they want to be the owner operator, they want to run their own stuff when they want to, and then they want to um, contract on or lease on with a certain company for other stuff. It would not allow that to happen um, under the PRO Act or, you know, AB5 as we've seen in California. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'm guessing, I mean, and again, this is a big assumption, but I'm going to assume that one of the advantages or the reason there's a push to have something like this is to force companies to pay a fair wage instead of allowing them to kind of sidestep it with a 1099. And and what I was going to say is like, I've seen this, it happens a lot in sales where a company will classify the like person, because it's not an employee, right? They'll classify the individual as W-2 or 1099, but then treat them like an employee, require them to be there, require them to be in meetings, right? Um, And then the reality is, is like, they want the best of both worlds. Like I've personally gone through that, right? In fact, you know, our attorney, the one we both use has helped me in similar situations to that, where it's like, you got to be on one side or the other. I'm either an employee or I'm not an employee. You can't have it both ways. And the one side is like, if you're 1099 and a lot of times, like some of these things aren't enforceable. You're also outside of the, um, I think it's the FTC, the federal trade commission that makes sure you get paid a minimum wage for hours. And I know there's a big lawsuit. I think that is still ongoing with TQL related to that, meaning they were all getting paid roughly, we'll say like, you know, high $30,000 but when you divide out the amount of hours they're actually working, they're making less than the national minimum wage. Yeah. And that has been an issue in salespeople in general too. So, I mean, I think there are two sides to that coin, but in my opinion, I think it hurts way more than it's going to help. Yeah. So the, the big push was to vote no on that. And what I think is you could attempt to revise the legislation to have it more 
to have it more specific to what you're really trying to get at, because the collateral damage of a lot of these, a lot of these bills, uh, it just, it hurts people that it should not hurt, right? Like the, the independent, the owner operator, right. That does not want to be classified as W2 for a variety of reasons. They're going to be, you know, they, they're forced to right now in California. And that, that could be the same way under the, the pro act, same thing with freight agents. It, it would, it would essentially disrupt the freight agent business model, which has become so prevalent in the last 10 or 15 years. So um, I'm not really worried about the the ramifications on that. Literally, I mean, Tennessee, obviously the the politics there, everyone we met with basically just shut us up and said, don't worry, we're, you know, we're, we're not voting yes to that. So we got to check the box on that one. But there was other states where, you know, like New York, California, they had to, they had to make a legitimate, um, like give their give their case as to why it would hurt the industry. And that's really what lobbying does for this industry is we have a voice in front of the legislative branch of our, of our government to really speak to why the way it's written right now, it negatively impacts, um, you know, the, the hardworking Americans out there that it shouldn't. So that was the pro act. All right. Um, Thinking of rate disclosures. What's the, yeah, so rate disclosures? Let's, let's go back. We, we've, we talked about this in the past, just to clarify there's, uh, you know, you hear like truck drivers demanding that freight brokers disclose their customer rates, right? And it's, you know, what's funny is one of the guys, we had like a, a, a briefing before we went to Capitol Hill to talk about the issues at hand and just kind of how things were going to go. And the one guy was like, you know, they use analogies like you don't go into the Apple store and see an iPad for $600 <laughs> and then it says this was made in Taiwan for $45, right? Right. Yes. Um, and the guy, he stands up, he's like, it's just on American. And I was like, I started laughing. I was like, all right, man. But, um, so look, here's something that I learned that really threw me off and it gave me context as to why this rule was in place. So if you go back to the early 1980s, when trucking was deregulated, right. And yep. by that, I mean, freight rates used to be determined by the by the federal government. It was if you're moving a truck from A to B, there was a, a contractual rate that that was, a, you know, that that was that was the price. So that's what you would pay. Now, when it was deregulated back, I think it was like 1981 or something like that. It's early they, 80s. Yeah, they de- deregulated trucking, but they left in there a an an old rule that stated that the motor carriers had the right to request in writing the rate that the broker paid. And the reason being is back in the early 80s when brokers became more prevalent, we were really representing just the the shipper, right? Because there was large fleets of trucks. There wasn't as many small trucking companies like there are today. So they, you know, they saw brokers as really just an extension of the the customer, sure. but not really as a, as a value add um, to the industry to the carrier. But obviously a lot has changed and that law still ha- 40 years later is still hanging out around there. So technically there, there is a law in place that states that a, a carrier can do that. So we asked for them to basically, you know, with their plan to deregulate, finish that, right? Just, it's an old, it's an old dusty law that really shouldn't be there anymore. It, it doesn't serve any purpose. Um, it's just, it's wild. I, I think one of the guys was saying like the, the way the law is written, I don't, I read the law. I think it's like three, seven, one, 
C3 or I forget. Um, but either way, like there's further information out that states like you have to respond to them within like 24 hours or something like that. And could you imagine if some of these companies that move hundreds of loads a day, if you'd have to employ additional people just to make, just to meet the the standard there. But on top of that, there's no reason that we should be disclosing our rates to carriers. Because think about this. A lot of the business that we do in the contract world is on an annual basis. And there's times when we have to take a loss, mm-hmm. right? Just to, be, and then we'll make up for it at later parts of the year, right? We give, by having contractual rates, we give consistency to our customers. Um, the carriers are the ones that kind of see the the rate fluctuation on that throughout the year. Um but I mean, there's times when we'll lose 50 bucks, but six months later, we'll make 500. Oh, I've, I mean, there, I'd say every month, at least a load, if not a few, I'm going to take a loss on. And one of the things that like we talk about even in coaching and in freight brokerage is like, that is one of your value adds back to a shipper is helping them keep their budget more predictable, not necessarily lower, but more predictable, right? So that they can budget for it, predict their costs a little better. On the other side of that fence is the carrier market. Well, guess what? No broker, no brokerage, no matter how big they are, has an impact over like shifting the market. The market shifts based on supply and demand. Yeah, freight, but also the carrier side, which brokers don't have any control over either one. And what what would frustrate me, or just speaking as a broker, if I have to disclose what I'm doing on that end, I want you to disclose to me your costs as a carrier. And when you're telling me you can't run it for less than this per mile, I want to know what you're doing with all of your expenses. Maybe you're poorly managing your business. That's why you can't run it for the rate that everyone else in the market can. Like, where's the accountability on that side, right? Like we work in the middle as an, by definition, intermediary, right? Like to tie your hands on one side, but not the other, I don't feel like really helps anybody. Yeah. So, I mean, think about here, here's the consequences if if this were to be enforced and to stick around. So carriers are going to demand higher pay and collectively as a part of the transportation industry, as we've seen in the past with supply and demand, they it's it's a snowball effect. Like they yep. start to re- request more and more money and it, it it juices up the the freight spend and the cost for us to hire a truck, which then eventually gets passed back to the shipper. To the shipper. <laughs> And who's going to be who's going to be paying that cost? It's the average American inflation consumer. Exactly. You know, you you start to enforce that and you're just you're going to start setting the bar a little bit higher and a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And, um, you know, why capitalism works is, you know, the 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 rates in our in our society and the cost of things fluctuate over time. And if capitalism work because a a carrier will will be paid what they conceive as fair to them in a reasonable amount um, and they will take it and the next guy might have a different amount. Right. So, uh, and it works and it keep, we're as brokers, we are keeping the, the consistency for the customer. We're keeping prices reasonable when it comes to freight spend. And it's just, that's part of the capitalistic society that we operate in, whether or not you lean left or you lean right. That is the way that our country operates now. Yeah. Regardless of even the United States, go back to Adam Smith, right? And the first books written on economics, right? It's the invisible hand of the market. Free trade allows it to fluctuate until it reaches a median that works both sides of the market, the supply and the demand side, right? And anytime you put a restriction into it, whether it's a tax and embargo or anything on it, it always increases the overall cost to everybody. No matter what, like that's just a fundamental law of economics, regardless if you're in the United States or anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And the argument on a lot of these carriers is like, they're like, why should 
you know, why should I be giving you 10 or 15% of my money? Like when you didn't do anything and they fail to realize we're their bank, which is the first big thing, right? Could you imagine a carrier when a customer slow, slow pays? Yep. It's, it's un, unbelievable. Um, and those are the headaches that we deal with all the time. And we have to keep a well-oiled machine to make it all work on a large, broad scope and a large scale. So, um, so yeah, the rate disclosure one, I mean, that's just, it's kind of an obvious thing. There's not a single broker out there that wants that. Um, yes, there are some greedy carriers out there, but um, it, hey, if you want if, if you want to make more money, just operate your business either more efficiently as a carrier or grow it, get some of that contract business yourself. We are, we are the sales force of a lot of motor carriers out there, right? The average trucking company. So not even the average, 90% of trucking companies have- The market. Seven or seven or less trucks, right? The market. We, we, the freight brokerage industry is the market. If you took all of the freight brokers out, guess what? Every carrier that needs a backhaul that they get randomly off a load board would no longer be there. Yeah. Like shippers would either then be required to post their own loads, which we know hasn't or likely wouldn't be working as efficiently because they have other jobs. There literally wouldn't be any loads. They would have to hire somebody else to call shippers in every city they're going to be at and try to get a one-off load to get them repositioned where they need to be, right? Yeah. So even if you got more money, if you got rid of the brokerages, the asset companies would have to hire somebody to be on the phone going and getting this freight for them every single day, in addition to their dispatchers, which are really just coordinating the loads that are already available. You'd have to hire a whole other layer onto the asset side, which is going to drive all those costs up. You're not eliminating anything. You're just moving it from one side, from the middle to the side. Yeah. Or or if if you're a carrier, open up your own brokerage division then, right? Get get your own brokerage authority and you can go out there and you'll know exactly how much you're going to be, you know, charging a customer. So, um, so that's rate disclosures. The third big one, and this is a hot item, is the illegal brokerage and dispatch services. So there's two subsets here. There's, there's the double brokering, and there's the illegal dispatch services. So I want to go back. Well, hold on one second. I want to go back to one more point on rate disclosures, right? Yes. Because if there is a lot of upset carriers blaming brokers for the loads that are available, nobody's making them take loads from a broker. They have every ability to get on the phone and call a shipper and go direct. There yep. is nothing preventing any asset carrier from going directly. In fact, that's literally what has happened this year after the pandemic is the carriers while they were all grabbing all the high paying spot freight during the pandemic because all was right in the world and everything was paying tons of money, once that shifted back to a normal market, the carriers did exactly what we're talking about. They're going direct to shippers. That's why contract rates right now are above the spot market in most of the country, right? For exactly the same reason. So there's always been the ability to not use a broker if you didn't want to, but if you needed it, it's there. So I don't really see what purpose it would serve to force brokers to disclose something that a carrier doesn't need to use in the first place if they didn't want to. Exactly. They have every right in the free market to pick and choose the loads they want. Don't work with a broker, work directly with shippers. Yep. If you can't get enough loads and you've got to use the brokerage, why are you yelling at them for providing a service that is helping you run your business? Absolutely. So um, double brokering. So we'll get right into it. So I want to give you some background and context. So 2012 under the President Obama administration, there was a bill or a law passed called MAP 21. And MAP is another acronym. It's the Moving Ahead for Progress and the 21st Century Act, MAP 21. 
And one of the things that was a part of this bill is it, it, it first of all, it increased the bond from 10 to $75,000 for freight brokers. And it also stated that you have to be a licensed freight broker by the FMCSA in order to be an, act as an intermediary. So it basically solidify what our job as a broker is. And um, something that I actually learned that I was unaware of is that there is already on the books, there is a fine in place for illegal brokering or double brokering. It's $10K, right? For, and it's supposed to be, um, you know, th- so the executive branch of the government is who enforces our laws. And in that case, the Department of Transportation, specifically the FMCSA, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, it's their job to impose this $10,000 fine on um, illegal brokering. So to give you context, right, we've seen a huge spike in the last probably six to nine months. You know, so the owner of, of uh, my company, Kevin Pierce, they started started the company back in 1981. He dealt with double brokering three or four times um, from 1981 until Memorial Day of this year. From Memorial Day of this year to now. Three, wait, hold on. I'm going to repeat that. From 1981 until Memorial Day of this year. So like literally as old as I am. So 40 years, he had seen three instances of double brokering impact the company. Yeah, three and or four. Since then, yeah, and in the past four months. <laughs> and since then, about 150. So that's eye-opening. And so this is something that um, it was very new for a lot of the a lot of the legislators we talked to when they heard about it. But a couple of them were like, we're starting to hear about this. Um, and I remind you that we had over 100 people representing almost all 50 states getting in their ears about this. This is the hot ticket item. It's on their it, it's on their agenda now. Like it's it's they're aware of it. And um, what we were pushing for is because obviously they can't create legislation that's going to enforce because they don't you don't enforce laws in the legislative branch. That's their job is to create the laws. And the law is already there. Ten thousand dollars. There's been eighty thousand complaints this year to the FMCSA of double brokering, and they've investigated zero and enforced zero of them. That's good to hear. So that do the math. If, imagine if they collected all that. It's like almost what is it, eight hundred and eighty million dollars or something just insane like that. Or eight hundred million? I don't know. I can't do the math, but um, and um, so yeah, some of those are probably duplicate reports on the same carrier. But think about all the ones that have not been reported because we just were like, we're not going to report them and waste our time because it happens all. You know, we we reported zero of them at Pierce out of the hundred and fifty. Eight hundred million dollars, by the way. So very close to a bill, like three quarters of a billion dollars. So what does that revenue do for you for the FMCSA? Well, it can put the bodies in place. It's going to appropriate the funds to them to like, if, if the reason they're not doing it is because they don't have the, the, the people or the, the assets or whatever resources to do it, there's your money right there. You have a, you have a vested interest in um, doing that. So by the way, just the math, right? Even if you enforced only 10%, right? 8,000 and you find all 8,000, you know what I mean? Um, the $10,000, you would end up with $80 million budget to enforce yep. this. Yep. If you enforce 10%, right? You figure the other 90% were just. Well, they, you know, they right? might not pay it, right? Because they might just Agreed. run and go out of business. But, but again, zero so, enforcement, yeah, no so money what, collected. So what we were pushing for is enforce it. And then if they're a repeat offender, you remove their authority, right? It's that simple. So. Like the, it was funny, the one, the one guy was like, basically, cause he, he was a lawyer, right. That went to uh, politics and he's like, oh, so that would be like, you know, disbarring them. 
We're like, exactly. That's a good analogy, right? Because they're they're licensed and authorized by the FMCSA to be a, a motor carrier. And if they're trying to operate as if they're trying to do brokerage activities illegally, then you take you pull their carrier license. You can't do anything. So that's I, so that's kind of what we're asking for. So let me ask you this. If you get that, what's preventing the individual from just green lighting another MC 30 days later? We'll, well go all the way back pro- to the individual. You've got that protest period when you apply for um, for a brokerage, right? So if somebody is, you know, let's say that they're so, – because what some of these guys are doing is they have an asset company and they have a brokerage company. They'll take it, take the load from a broker posing as their asset company, but then they'll use their broker authority and think they're actually doing it legally, but they're doing it illegally because um, it's there's deception there. And like the the folks we met with, they're like, this is violating at least four or five federal laws by what they're doing. Wire fraud. We're like, yeah. yeah, yes, it is. So, and they're like, why is nothing being done? We're like, that's why we're here. Well, they're like, what do you want us to do? We're like, shine the light on the FMCSA. And what they what they suggested was two things. Number one is they're wanting the TIA, the folks in Washington lobbying for us to um, initiate something with the commerce. Um, what is it called? The whatever the, the group of people that deal with certain specific things. Oh, Commerce Committee, right? They, they're wanting TIA to, to lobby to the Congress or the uh, Commerce Committee about um, enforcing this. And the second part was to get the FMCSA, you know, part of the Department of Transportation, to get them on the House floor, uh, on the record to talk about this, to find out what's going on, why aren't they doing anything about it, to really just put the pressure on them. So, um yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we the, the instances we talked about, there's a ton of them, right? There's the, you know, the ones that they use and they use an actual brokerage authority to rebroker it, even though they pose as a carrier. Then yes, you wanna you wanna um, throw out their brokerage authority, and if you have to, you can throw out their carrier authority or whatever. And remember, there's a there's a ten day protest period when you apply through the FMCSA to be a broker, in which anybody can give reason to the FMCSA as to why you cannot be granted a brokerage authority. So if they know that this person with their name applied to be a broker and this was their MC number, if they have these violations against them, that would be a valid reason to protest against them and not have them be granted a future authority. So that's how you can prevent them from doing it going forward. Um, Again, there's going to always be ways to skirt around it. The goal here is not to get rid of it 100%, but realistically the goal is to have a big enough impact that we can reduce the frequency of it so that we're dealing with less headaches, less money out of pocket. Because think about it. When someone double brokers or triple brokers or whatever, we've seen quadruple brokers, um, the actual driver who hauled it doesn't get paid. So then we end up paying the freight bill a second time as a broker to take care of them. We've already paid the scammer once. And now here we are having to foot the bill a second time. And there's so like no recourse money. either. Like the, exactly. I've never heard of anybody ever recouping any of the money in any instance where this is. One occurring. of the things they asked us too is they're like, you're like, well, is there a way to to see the reporting on it? And we're like, well, no, there's not. You can't go to the FMCSA website, type in a, a an MC number and find out if they've been, you know, if they've double broker before or had a report against them. And we're, we're talking about how you have to literally pay a third party to get this additional, to do the government's job, <laughs> to do the government's job for them. So um, it's funny. One of the guys that was there representing his brokerage, he actually he contacted the FMCSA and he said, "I would like to request a copy of the reports that have been made to you guys on 
carriers that have uh, rebrokered a load. And they're like, sure, we can send you a CD in the mail once or, or, you know, on a monthly basis that will give you the list of the reports. And he's like, a CD? Who even has a CD drive anymore on the, on the computer? But on top of that, monthly, these guys pop up and they shut down so fast that that's, you're not going to be able to catch it that quickly. So, no. yeah. I should, yeah. We want an easier way to be able to vet this. And um, we want action to be taken against the bad actors out there that are really giving a bad name to brokers in the industry. So even if even if you don't get all the way to enforcement, right, like there's so many steps in between nothing and that that can be done right in your example. Right. Even if there was just a database that you were able to access the reports against an MC, right, where you could see literally everything that way, you could just quickly double check a carrier before you were brokering a load to them. Right. Just to be like, hey, was there one? Does it seem legit? Or was there 15, right? Oh, okay. Well, maybe this is a little bit different. And I'd be curious to see if any of these other carrier companies, these third parties that deal, not carrier companies, third party companies that are supposed to vet this for you, how much and how much of that info is actually being imported into their systems? Yeah. So really what what we're having access to through third parties is brokers self-reporting on Issues that hey, they've run into, right? Freight so guards, watch Terror four one one, Terror four hundred one. Yep, freight guards, all all that stuff. Um, so yeah, that that's the that's the big issue here is we're having to pay money to a third party to, to, to do the government's job that they're not doing. So, and what you know, what some of the members of Congress told us is, you know, it would be very difficult for the FMCSA to be required to post reports against um, an organization if they've not yet been adjudicated or basically, you know, investigated and settled, right? So they, you might see, you know, there's been 50 complaints on this carrier, um, but since zero has been done about it, right? They can't legally report on it because nothing's actually been investigated. It's hearsay. Um, Yeah. But, you know, there's gotta be some way that we can differentiate between they've been quote unquote convicted of double broker or illegal brokering um, and reports against them. So, well, to be honest, it's kind of an asinine excuse to begin with. They're like, well, we can't put the information out because we haven't adjudicated it. Well, why haven't you adjudicated it? Well, because we're not enforcing anything. So the fact that you're not enforcing anything or adjudicating anything means you can't even do the intermediary step like then. Yep. OK, like let's do something here. Yep. And then so the other part, the illegal dispatch services is we're, we're asking the FMCSA to give clear guidance on what a dispatching service is is um to you know just to kind of put that in writing so we know because there's there's a lot of these dispatching services that are popping up that they're kind of teetering the line between brokering acting as brokers or acting as a a dispatcher on behalf of a motor carrier and that's where we're, we're asking for a line to be drawn and honestly a lot of the the illegal brokering scams and activities have been popping up in, in foreign places, right? So like some of the ones that we, we've been seeing are like Moldova, Crimea, um, Armenia, parts of Ukraine, um, Pakistan, India. There's there's just, there's some bad actors and some bad eggs out there. And what happens is like they these folks will start up as legitimate business people and they don't understand the how, how the U.S. is... Um, I guess the licensing and everything for freight brokerage and transportation, how it all works. So they're like, Oh, you know, I've got, um, maybe they, maybe they are, they work for a trucking company. Right. And they're just, they're the, 
the they're the dispatcher for that trucking company. And then they're like, well, I don't have a truck, but let me take the load anyway, and I'll just find another truck. So maybe it's like one time and then two. And then they're like, dude, we can make so much more money if we just keep doing this. And then, you know, next thing you know, they're they're just illegal brokering back and like well, time after time after time. And to that point, like I have, we've both have um, been on calls a lot this year to exactly the point, right? So much more prevalent now than it was before, but have literally been on phone calls with teams in some of these other countries, some in the US too. Um, but like we're double brokering as a matter of procedure. Like that was how they were running their business. And we were genuinely unaware that that is not above the board brokering. Like yes. just thought that was the way the industry works because the person that hired them taught them that and they didn't know yeah. any difference. And hey, if somebody hires me to a job and then they teach me how to do it, I'm not like looking up you know, like legislation in a foreign country to make sure my manager yep. is teaching me the right thing. So, I mean. And you, I mean, it happens in the States too. Like I talked to a guy from Chicago that um, he was wanting to be an agent for our company and he's telling me about what he does. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm a carrier right now. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, you know, I, we really like to have folks that are experienced in brokerage and understand what, you know, the process of hiring a third party truck. He's like, Oh, I already do that. You know, if I don't have a truck available, I'll go on the boards and I'll find another truck. I'm like, that's, that's double brokering. He's like, no, it's not. He's like, I'm taking care of that broker because you know, I promised him a truck and I don't have one. So I got to get him one. And I'm like, that's brokering and you, you're doing it illegally. Yes. And he's, he, he didn't understand the concept that what he was doing was, was against right. the law and um, regulation. So, but yeah, anyway, um, not to go too long on the topic, but I can assure you all out there in the audience that um, they're aware of it now. Whether or not they do anything about it is unknown, but I can tell you TIA is um, it's on their it's on their agenda and they're they're pushing for a lot of action and exposure to this in front of the Commerce Committee, as well as getting FMCSA on the record, um, you know, to talk about this and why they're not taking the action on it that's already part of the legislation that exists under, you know, Mac 21. So good stuff. We got, we got a few um, listener questions today, but first I'm gonna give a shout out to our friends over at Lean. Lean Solutions Group is the industry leader in nearshore staffing solutions with offices in South America, including freight broker back office operations, accounting, tech development, business development, marketing, customer service, and many other positions. To learn more about the vast solutions that Lean has to offer your brokerage or agency, Visit them online at www.leangroup.com. It's actually interesting too, the amount of um, brokerages, brokerages that I got to meet folks from this week that uh, that they use Lean and they loved it. So uh, they're doing a lot and they've grown a ton. I think the, the shift to the remote style workforce has really opened people's eyes to the, the ability to partner with a near shore staffing partner like Lean. So I'm glad that things are going awesome for them and um, good stuff, man. We're actually, we're going to have, um, we're going to be having a guest, uh, on behalf of lean that they recommend to us come on in just a couple weeks. Yep. So it'd be a good episode. We got okay. Q and a, yes. How, first question. We got four today. How can I deal directly with a broker instead of going through a dispatcher? So this is obviously a carrier asking this question. Um, I mean, I, I guess the obvious way is to utilize, the load boards, right? And, and what's been, I think it's been awesome in our Facebook group 
is that you've got a lot of these smaller carriers on there that are they're just building up their broker network by introducing themselves in the community and saying, hey, drop your email. Um, I'll get you on my list, I'll let you know what my capacity is. And it, it alleviates their need to have someone dispatching for them. So I like that. Yeah, to be honest, I mean, you can go directly to the load boards. You can book your own loads through a load board, call a broker direct, negotiate your own rates. There's nothing preventing you as a carrier for doing that. But again, our Facebook group is a really good source of that freight brokers and carrier network. I mean, there are a lot of newer brokers and smaller carriers networking and genuinely like developing relationships, ending up with loads from it. Um, A lot of local stuff, a lot of things that don't hit the load board. So I think that's another great place to take a look. Yep. Absolutely. Glad we can have a positive impact on the industry just from a Facebook group, man. It's so cool. Yeah. So, all right, next one. What insurance do I need to operate as an independent dispatcher? Um, well, this is why, one of the reasons why we're asking FMCSA to clarify this because the answer is none. None. You need, you're literally acting as like an independent contractor on behalf of a carrier to yep. find them a load. Um, you're not handling any money, right? And if you are, you're, you're Ill, that's an illegal service. You should be being paid a commission by a by motor carrier or providing them those dispatching services. So you, yep. what I would tell you is if you if you if you built up a dispatching company with multiple people, you have an office, you're going to probably want like a general liability policy, workers comp, st- just stuff to handle um, what could go wrong inside of your you know your physical office space. But yeah, there's zero insurance required right now. So yep, this next right. one's good. Yeah, who creates the bill of lading? Is it the customer, the broker, or the carrier? Um, and I actually I dealt with this quite a bit this week, where there's confusion about it with folks. And the answer is, it can be any of them. Um, so I'll tell you, when I worked for Conway Freight, we for most of the customers we would um, bring a bill of lading with us, and um, you know, I guess the the driver would right to the to the shipper. And they'd fill out the paperwork there, but it actually said Conway Freight right on it. Um, there are a lot of times customers that will prepare their own bill of lading, and the driver will not see that bill of lading until he or she actually gets there and um, the freight gets loaded on, they sign it, and they accept ownership of it. And then there's a lot of customers, we see this a lot in the freight forwarding world, where they're, the customer, our customer, is asking us as a broker as a value add to please produce and send over the bill of lading for them to save them the time. Um, so it could be done by any party. Uh, the thing that, to keep in mind here is that bill of lading or BOL, it's a legal document. It's a contractual document that follows the custody of the freight from pickup to delivery. So us as brokers, we're not on it, or I'm sorry, we don't sign it. Our name can be on there, if, you know, third party charges or whatnot, but the actual shipper, is going to assign it, acknowledging the description of the freight, you know, X amount of pallets or whatever. The carrier is going to sign it, accepting physical ownership of that freight. And then the receiver will sign it, acknowledging the receipt of the receipt and condition of that product when it gets there. So if there's a damages or a short, they're short a couple pallets, that receiver is going to annotate that on there. Um, here's something that was interesting that we, we ran into this week, and it was an error on... Um, really on all parties, but really the, I think the, the broker's the one that really screwed up here. So customers been moving a lot of um, dry van freight in a certain lane and then asks the broker, um, hey, I need a reefer. 
um, you know, continuous at 34 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm just making these numbers up. Um, but the broker makes the error of he's so used to running that dry van freight. He sends a dry van in there and the shipper takes refrigerated product and knowingly loads it on the wrong equipment. The broker clearly hired the wrong equipment and the driver clearly like let his truck get loaded with refrigerated stuff when he's got a dry van. So like it's, it's up in the air as to who's, you know, everyone's trying to point fingers. I mean, the broker's got a big responsibility in that, but I think that's a failure on all three parties right there. I mean, it's like your first time loading fresh produce while you put it on a a dry van that's 80 degrees. (laughs) So that's a messy one. So, but yeah, it can be done. The BOL can be created by anybody, but the custody of that BOL is very specific. Shipper signs it, carrier signs it and takes it with them and the receiver signs it. And then the carrier uh, is sending that in typically to get their payment. So, all right, last question here. I'm a new freight agent, but don't know what to say on a cold call. Who should I ask for and what should I be saying? And this could be, this applies to if you're just a new broker, a new W-2, an agent, whatever. Um, So let's talk about first, who should you be asking for? So Ben, in your opinion, who is the, you know, who do you want to get on the phone? Well, you want the person in charge of transportation or shipping. So if at all possible, you should try to find that person's name or at least a name before you call, because that is going to help you get through the gatekeeper and just get through being screened, which is your first hurdle in a prospecting call. So if you can find a name of anybody, specifically in the transportation department or the shipping department, check LinkedIn. Zoom Info is a great source for that. That's how you can find who you're trying to reach. Yep. Definitely. Um, and I'll add to that too, is there are some times when you need to be talking to a decision maker, right? And it may not always be that traffic manager or logistics coordinator. You might need to be talking to someone that is uh, their boss, right? Yep. Who makes a decision about onboarding new transportation providers. Now, as far as what should you be saying, I want to first reference you guys back to, we just released a video about specific questions to be asking when you're cold calling shippers. And Ben, you've had a lot of videos in the past on questions to ask and like, you know, it's essential questions to ask when cold calling um, this, the cold calling process, so dig through our library, just go to our website, click on like the resources, go to the other videos or blogs, whatever, just type in sales or prospecting or cold calling. And you'll get, you'll get hits for every single piece of content that we cover on here. But a lot of the things that you're going to want to be asking are things like their their volume of the freight that they're moving. How often? What kind of freight are they moving? Um, what challenges are they running into? And what are things that are important to them with their their trusted transportation providers? And you know, do they have a bid process and things like that? Um, what you don't want to say is, "Hi, I have I have trucks in your area," because that's a very novice thing for new freight brokers to do. And you. You're screaming um, brand new to the person on the other end of the phone there. And to be honest, here's the thing. If you go through our YouTube content, what you'll see is we talk a lot about the structure, the approach, and why you should be doing certain things. Because, again, just giving you a script isn't really going to help you because every shipper is a little different. They're different sizes, different people, different days of the week that you're going to be speaking to them. So, I I mean, the advice I'd give to somebody is take a look through some of the videos to get some idea. Pick something if you're new and just go with it. 
Because yep. your voice will change over time. It, it sure will, will change based on how often you're getting through, how often they're receptive, how much pushback you get. You will just genuinely change the, your tone and the things you say based on what's coming back at you. So pick something, just start using it, and you will kind of your vo- your voice will evolve from there. Yeah, and um, we said it before. The important thing your first like 500 calls. The importance of that call is not trying to land 10 new shippers. The importance of that is to get in the rhythm of prospecting and making those phone calls to figure out what that voice needs to change into and what those questions and the structure of the call, how they need to adjust. So, it, yep. you know, don't overthink it. Like this person asking the question, I'd be willing to bet that they're not putting the call volume in or not because they're, they're like, well, I don't even know who to ask for. I don't know what to, what to say or what to ask. Um, just start making the calls. You're going to make mistakes at first and you're going you're gonna to get better over time. So. Great questions though. We appreciate it. We got, usually only get like two or three um, a week on the show, but I liked all four of those and I thought it was good to get them on there. So, um, oh, I got to make my Bills prediction. Bills um, will be on the road in Miami. As I said, both 2-0 teams. The, here's the, here's the um, odds here. Buffalo is a five and a half point favorite. And the over-under is 52 points. I'm going to take the Bills to cover the spread. Um, so I think I, I think Bills are going to win by – I'm not going to give the double-digit win like the first two games. I'm not saying it's out of the question, but I feel pretty confident on, on a seven-point seven margin or higher there. So Steelers tonight. Um, so obviously when this comes out, we're recording on Thursday this week. So when this comes out in the morning, the game will already have been over. But I said the, the Steelers – to cover the uh, it was four and a half right yeah so or no cover four so I like that one we will so. see time will tell who are they, are they playing on the road in Cleveland uh, or are, yeah. they, are they at home do you know no I think they're playing in Cleveland yeah okay I like uh-huh. it the over under is only at thirty eight there's another one I might look at tonight wow so all right good stuff Sweet, man. man final uh, final thoughts here any last minute uh, things you want to hit on. Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next week, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the Contact Us form on our site and we'll see you next week.